0: We have an intuition that at like 100 million users with self-custody signing their own transactions every day, at those numbers 100 million and a billion, those are where there's going to be big unlocks and unexpected use cases that pop up in the way that people coordinate their resources together, make shared decisions together, align interests together, and participate in new forms of global capital markets together.
1: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and one of the key challenges for Web3 is the speed of transactions and rapid development on the blockchain. Today I have Raj Gokal, co-founder of Solana, board member of Solana Foundation and co-founder of Solana Labs. Solana is a leading blockchain when it comes to speed of transactions and developers enthusiasm. Truth be told. I have Solana tokens in my own portfolio, and this is not investment advice, but for educational purposes, and please do your research. Raj, welcome to the show, and it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me,
0: Bernard. It's uh, an honor to be here as well.
1: Yes. So to start, we always dive into the origin stories of our guests. From reading and listening to your past interviews in preparation for this one, I know that you originally started in the healthcare space and then moved into the blockchain space, which is a really big jump. So how did you start your career and end up becoming one of the co-founders of Solana?
0: So my background was in health tech mainly. So digital health was the term in Silicon Valley for the years between 2010, 2011 and at around 2016, there was a lot of venture funding, a lot of new apps, a lot of new hardware and programs that health insurance companies started to deploy. And I think a lot of the the theses that were put forth at the time were there would be personalized healthcare, there would be device and hardware enabled healthcare. Healthcare would become a lot more consumerized, so it would feel more like the type of technology that we'd seen in media and entertainment and, and, and the purchasing decision for, for healthcare would, would start to look more like buying an iPhone. And obviously a lot of that didn't really pan out, but in the, in the meantime, the, the companies that I was a part of, the first one was a very, it was cutting edge glucose sensor tech. So Wearable glucose sensors that were minimally invasive, felt like sandpaper, and would would be used for a- athletic and, and consumer applications, just for people to better understand their their glucose profile. And and the second company was Omada Health. Biology, uh, Srinivasan was on the board, and that was an Endres and Horowitz company. So it was more commoditized hardware, connected uh, weight scale and pedometer and a remote health coach, and it was a behavioral program for weight loss targeted at people that were at risk of becoming diabetic or developing cardi- cardiovascular disease. And that was selling into health insurance company. I think that company is going public some, somewhat soon. So the connection there was a highly regulated industry that for a long time wasn't really touched by technology. When I was there, and, and I think this is still the case, a lot of communications in the healthcare industry that are mission critical end up going through fax machines. And I think a lot of people looked at the healthcare industry And maybe education, Coursera and and Udemy and other companies were looking at making education a lot more digitized and rebuilding business models there for a tech first world and finance as well. A lot of companies were moving into finance. These heavily regulated industries were trying to pull off what Uber had pulled off and Airbnb had pulled off and PayPal, where these industries were getting rebuilt really quickly by delivering a value proposition to users that was obvious in retrospect and undeniable, and one where regulations and consumer behaviors reformed very quickly. I think in healthcare, what what ended up happening was the the regulators, so the FDA and, and other regulators, and then the incumbents, so large health plans, really pulled all the strings in this $12 trillion industry. And anything that you wanted to get done as a technologist, you really needed their permission. And I think in crypto, what I see is we don't need anyone's permission. So it didn't matter that Goldman Sachs didn't really believe in crypto or J.P. Morgan. The incumbents weren't supportive of technology rebuilding capital markets from the ground up as internet protocols. But they didn't have to be because the value propositions to end users in the form of DeFi and monetizing their work and connecting with artists through NFTs are just so obvious once you connect with them that users advocate for these value propositions and products and they grow like wildfire. So that was, I think the reason why I jumped from one, you know, in my mind, very heavily regulated technology play to, to another. And I, I definitely couldn't be happier to be in this industry.
1: So what are the interesting career lessons which you can share with my
0: audience? Yeah, I think knowing what you're what you're good at and what you enjoy doing and not wasting any time, getting to the place where you are doing those things pretty much all day. I think for me starting new projects, working on software, not hardware, working with really fast moving teams, covering a lot of the parts of, of a business, a technology business, so moving between product and operations and finance and capital raising and sales and BD. For me, I, I knew what I was good at, and and I know what I'm not good at. I'm not a really hands-on software developer. I'm more of a designer. And then I think finding your tribe, finding people who you pair really well with. So for me, you know, Anatoly and, and, and a lot of the engineers that we brought in in the early days, it was the polar opposite of me. Anatoly is like a super... Super intense embedded systems and distributed systems engineer, and, and I saw my role as just getting everything out of his way, and it was really mentally and his idea for how to apply distributed systems principles to blockchain to solve the scalability problem that gave me the catalyst to make that jump into into crypto. I had you know followed Ethereum and followed Bitcoin and followed followed the ICO boom. But I was still ready to to play out a couple more theses in digital health until I reconnected with Anatoly. And I think that was the time in my career where I said I was going to be far less thematic in in the, the way that I choose my next step. And far more people driven. So instead of looking for the right, you know, business model and mental health to to find a wedge to rebuild healthcare, I was I was I was willing to spend at least like six months just helping Anatoly because he was the best technologist that I knew and met in in years. And switching the metric a little bit and focusing on people. And just working with people that you that you work well with and that you respect is often good enough. You don't have to get a whole lot right if you get that
1: one thing right. So which comes to the main subject of the day, I want to talk to you about Solana. The place I, which I want to start off with is, I think you already talked a little bit about how you met Anatoly and come together to build this blockchain that is actually built to enable scalable user-friendly apps. My... Question would be more towards what is the inspiration and what is it like in order to get into this blockchain project and started delivering value for people who want to develop on the blockchain itself?
0: I mean, I think the, the original thesis with Solana was that this was a time in 2017, 2018 when CryptoKitties was crippling the Ethereum network and that was tens of thousands of users in a very simple use case and, and it was pushing gas fees to dozens of dollars uh, per transaction and, and it was making, making Finale an, an order of minutes, not, not seconds. And I think the thesis for us was, if this is a sign that blockchain does have use cases that consumers care about, and if there's one of these, there's probably going to be a thousand of these. Then chances are that this underlying architecture is not just off by a 10x. It's off by a thousand x or 10000 x or a hundred thousand x on performance if we see any more of these use cases play out and and catch wildfire. And the reason that we that we believe that, well, to us, it was pretty obvious. I think this was like one of the first things that that I, I really respected about Anatoly and that I felt was rare was someone who looks forward into the future and says, I've seen this story before. It it came in different flavors. So for example, when I first started working at Best Buy in my hometown, one gigabyte thumb drive was pretty was like a really big deal. And it cost like a hundred dollars. And I remember all of my coworkers and my family saying, I'm not sure how I could fill up a one a one gig thumb drive. <laughs> and now you have terabyte sd cards for cameras and if you go on a vacation you can fill it up pretty quickly so in storage in in compute and in bandwidth things double every couple years and we find new applications to to make use of that storage and compute and all the time it's it's just how computers work it's how demand for for computing applications works and i think our bet was Either blockchain is not going to be useful for anything or it's going to be really, really useful for a lot of things. And it's going to be it's going to need to be super, super performant. So the the thought experiment with Solana was how would you architect a system such that the performance, so the the, the speediness uh, of finality, the, the cost and the throughput, the amount of applications you can pack onto one uncharted network is limited only by, by the physics of the hardware and the network bandwidth. How would you maximize that, that throughput to a point where the, the biggest bottleneck is how long it takes for the, the speed of light to go around the planet to achieve consensus across computers that are distributed around the world? And the answer was, and this was, this was Anatoly's insight, the answer was that you need to parallelize block production and you need a source of time before consensus which didn't exist at that point in in all of blockchain. And the reason you need a, a source of time is because the inspiration around the that parallelized block production model was basically TDMA. So time division, multiple access and radio networks. The first time that people put up two radio towers that were broadcasting on the same frequency at the same time, there was a ton of noise. And the first thing they did was put clocks on on both towers and alternate by time. And that way, within a given second, the more granularly these clocks are synchronized, the more you can transmit back and forth and take turns, which means the more towers you can fit into a certain amount of bandwidth. And, and this didn't exist in blockchain because there was no source of time in a network where uh, nobody trusts each other. So Anatoly's big insight was you can create that source of time if you loop a SHA-256 hash function over itself. In a way that can only be done on a single core, it can't be parallelized. I think of it like an hourglass that's filling up with every of that of that recursive hash function, and that that gives you a source of time that's synchronized across the network. That then you can build the equivalent of TDMa on top of. So Anatoly reminded me of, of of like Elon Musk when when he asked the question, "How much could the 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 metal, like the the raw materials, possibly cost to build a rocket?" And instead of where everyone else was going to Russia and buying used rockets, Elon asked the question, how much would it cost to just build one ourselves if, if we could make the manufacturing capabilities? And so I like that approach. I think that's like a, a really good one. If you're if the main thing you're trying to do is is compete on something like cost, um, going down to physics is a really good idea. And yeah, that was that was the inspiration. And I think obviously Anatoly is the right person to do that because he's got decades of experience in distributed systems and and embedded systems and he's built these wireless networks that that use these principles so from that point it was just a matter
1: of getting enough of an engineering team in place to, to actually build the thing that's a pretty interesting inspiration in how you all think about it it's just like when people today talk about 5g you know my text and my audio is loading very quickly there's no change but then i just have to ask them try downloading something from netflix in one gigabyte it should be pretty fast and then new applications will show up so fast forward to today What is the vision and mission of Solana? Along the way, I I think it hopefully is pretty obvious that the
0: whole goal wasn't just to make faster CryptoKitties. I I think when we started to ask what the the killer use cases were going to be, because in 2017, 18, people really constantly were almost making fun of us saying, nobody's going to need this type of throughput. It could be decades before anything reaches that level of adoption. I think our our thesis to begin with was that this DeFi would be incredibly useful in a in a high performance environment and that things like an on-chain Nasdaq or Coinbase so a fully on-chain central limit order book could only exist with this type of performance and those things exist today. So Serum is an on-chain central limit order book where every bid and ask and cancel is an on-chain transaction. So it's a censorship resistant public exchange order book for for any asset. That's pretty powerful and it exists today. But I think if you take that vision forward, you can imagine that every asset can achieve price discovery on chain in that type of order book environment. Or if it's a low liquidity asset, you can have AMMs that share liquidity with that order book. That also exists today in DeFi on Solana. But I think the vision is that any asset that has a price, which is really everything, can achieve price discovery the fastest and the most efficient way on this global financial internet that has been built and and that price discovery can propagate you know through the world at the speed of light so if news in in China should affect the 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 price of silver th- then people across the world will both learn about that news event and see Uh, a difference in the global price of silver propagate at the same speed, which is the speed of light around the earth. And this is powerful because I think in textbooks, we try to behave as if there are global efficient capital markets for every asset, but many, many assets are far more liquid and, and their markets are far more efficient than others. And so I think part of the Solana vision is the idea that every market can become efficient to the limits of physics and that that's important and that you can build things on top of that. What do we think we're going to build on top of that? I mean, I think we're already starting to see that there's a, a free global a, open market for creative work. So digital art, collectibles, and, and user-generated content all are starting to find markets where anyone in the world can be on the other side of valuing and buying and owning these creative works. And I think what's gonna happen is there will be billions of artists that are creating every day and, and actually monetizing their work in the same way that Instagram turned a billion people into photographers for the first time with a global audience. Now people can can actually, you know, see and capture the value of their work, get likes for it. So that world looks, you know, pretty different in, in some ways. And and in some ways we're already seeing it happen. I think TikTok and having millions of young people that are, are natively spending you know most of their day on video and earning from it and having a, a global audience in the millions is a very different world than even five years ago. But I, yeah, I think the exciting thing here is that we kind of know the powerful building blocks that we've built and we have vision for how those will propagate through the world and become used every day. But we don't really know what products uh, will look like, what they're going to be called, or what the next version of social media is, something that those two words together didn't mean anything 20 years ago. And now, well, maybe I guess 30 years ago, but now it's, it's, it's like as uh, commonplace as, as water or bread. I think what we're excited about is a world in 10 or 20 years where there are very commonplace products that make use of this, this fabric, this financial internet
1: that's been created that we can't really predict yet. So can you talk about your current role in the Solana Foundation and Solana Lab and what's your typical day like? Yeah, I mean,
0: I think it, it changes like every few months
1: because we're in this period of, of
0: hyper-intensive growth for the network. And we're also seeing the use cases change and, and evolve every quarter. But within Solana Labs, I'm, uh, I'm chief operating officer. So all finance and, and business development and marketing and an operations report to me, basically everything outside of engineering. And then in Solana foundation, i'm I'm on the board. So I support grants and validator growth on the network. and uh, And the foundation generally is in charge of evangelizing and 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 growing the network and and supporting the improvement of the performance of the network. So yeah, I think what we're what we're seeing right now and and how things are changing is a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, the DeFi ecosystem was very small, and Solana Labs was building reference implementations for, for things like borrowing and lending and AMMs. And today there's a really flourishing, like thousand flowers blooming DeFi ecosystem where even within borrowing and lending, there are, there are probably over a dozen vying for the top spot. And And then six months ago, eight months ago, NFTs were were coming up, and so a lot of my work was supporting artists, creators, and and helping to to build tools, find tools, invest in tools for those creators to be able to publish their work, and and for marketplaces to to build up and specialize and compete. And today, I think the NFT ecosystem on Solana is looking similar to what DeFi did before that. It's very mature. There's been intense competition for secondary marketplaces that's now, it's pretty mature. And I think what we're seeing next is, I think it's a few things, but right now gaming is probably the the hottest new category. So we're supporting a lot of new games getting off the ground sometimes that's helping them get funding help helping them structure helping them recruit and and also just watching for new new patterns that that exist so like we recently saw them the move to earn uh, design pattern and economic model in in games like step in it's clearly working and it's it's clearly growing really fast so hundreds of thousands of users are are coming and installing the app, downloading NFTs and, and walking or running to earn tokens. And I think studying these patterns and, and seeing where else they might be uh, usable and and how an application might piece together a few of these dynamics to, to get to a billion users, that's a lot of what our teams focus on today.
1: So to also help my audience to understand why Solana is different from the other blockchains, I sort of want you to help me to define two terms in which what makes Solana different. So Solana runs on a combination of two mechanisms, uh, proof of stake and proof of history. Can you provide a high level view on how these mechanisms work for Solana? We'll start with proof of history. So I described earlier that proof of history
0: is effectively the, the clock. So the source of time before consensus in, in the Solana network. And then proof of stake is, is not something that that was invent, invented or or created for the Solana network specific, specifically. It's just uh, a method of consensus where instead of instead of proof of work, where you're you're having participants in the network solve puzzles solving cryptographic puzzles to to earn block rewards and validate transactions and and secure the network effectively turning electricity or or work into security in in proof of stake you're using economic security so your stake value that has a market value in 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 global liquid markets and you're validating transactions and you're risking that that value so if, if transactions are validated incorrectly, then you risk slashing of your stake. And if they're validated correctly, then you earn typically inflationary rewards from the network. So you, you get a, you get staking income and, and a yield on your uh, on your in, in, in the case of Solana, you get a yield on SOL tokens. Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake as well. Cosmos was one of the first networks that we watched that, that moved to or sorry that, that launched with proof of stake. And, and yeah, I think the combination of these two is, is that a proof of history allows for Solana to have parallelized block production in its proof of stake network. So we like to say Solana is, is a proof of history enabled proof of stake. So it's mm-hmm. the combination of the two that makes
1: it uh, performant along with a number of other innovations that, that are all laid out like on the website. So the differentiation between Solana and other blockchains is the speed and the way to quantify is using transactions per second. So for context to everyone, Uh, Bitcoin processes something like 4 transactions per second. Maybe with Lightning Network, they will improve a little bit more. Ethereum's are 15 transactions per second until they go into their ETH2 merge. And then Solana can process 65,000 transactions per second. And I'm sure your next generation of the Solana network is going to build even faster. So maybe to help my audience, how does speed factor in why blockchains need to get right in order for the blockchain ecosystem to be successful? I guess to begin with, just just to elaborate on the differences between
0: Solana and other networks, it is faster. I think from the beginning, the other design principle that Solana used was the idea that you should avoid sharding. So every other scalability-focused layer one network that that I know of has some form of sharding, including Ethereum's scaling roadmap. Their their entire approach to to scaling is uh, is sharding-based and ethereum communicated this from really like 2017 um forward i think even before that the idea around how ethereum would get beyond this 10 or 15 transactions per second was that it would eventually be many networks many blockchains that are interoperable with one another and that share security from 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 one primary blockchain and cosmos is another example of sharding uh, and and polkadot, the parachains, those are all just more more blockchains that are interoperable and in share security. Avalanche subnets, same thing. It's it's all sharding. So so we use the word sharding broadly to just define the concept that you scale through through partitioning or or having separate blockchains versus having one single shared state machine that scales and, and improves throughput to its physical bounds. So Solana is is that, it's one single state machine. It's never had sharding in its history and and there's no plans for for sharding to, to scale. And again, the way that's achieved is, is through proof history, and, and we haven't seen that done in any other network yet. The other thing to, to note about Solana is that it's designed to scale and get faster with improvements in, in hardware and network bandwidth. And we've already seen this happen over the past couple of years of, of Solana being live on, on mainnet. The, the requirements for a validator have have gone. Those are the variables, the levers that you have to pull. You can keep performance the same and costs will go down because the, the price of one unit of, of compute tends to go down by about 2x every couple years. So that's Moore's law and it's been going since like the 60s. And so we can expect the validator costs to come down or for the same cost, you can get uh, a validator that's that's you know twice the the power. So if you do put more cores in a box uh, for a validator, Solana is designed to take advantage of of those additional cores and and become faster. And so we benchmark the network to around fifty or sixty five thousand transactions per second when when it was first started. We expect that this will go up over time, and that finality will will get faster over time. And and so yeah, coming to your second question, why is it important that that these things are fast. Well, if you if you think about the example that I laid out earlier of an on-chain central limit order book where every bid and ask and and cancel is a transaction, that's just not possible. So it's 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 not possible without a scalable blockchain that can process a lot of transactions fast. But it's also you need finality. You need for a guarantee that very quickly these these bids and asks and cancels aren't going to be reversed in any way because even a bid even if an an order doesn't clear technically the the company or the balance sheet that's putting that that transaction on the chain is putting capital at risk even if nobody fills it that capital was at risk for the time that the bid was open and and you can't actually put capital at risk and and reap the rewards of it if, if you don't have fast finality. For end users, it's, it's, it's similar. So I think um, we're very early in scratching the surface on end user applications that, that take advantage of this performance in, in really innovative ways. But our intuition is that there are going to be user applications that just need for an on-chain transaction to feel like a mouse click or to feel like a, like a swipe or a gesture. And you're going to have users constantly generating transactions. There are some examples of, of applications that, that need this. So Audius is, um, is a, an on-chain version of Spotify. It's a music streaming platform where royalties get paid out instantly to, to artists. It's censorship resistant, so it takes advantage of Solana and Filecoin IPFS to, to have all of its artists works on-chain and, and on Filecoin in a way that can never be deleted. So this is important because a lot of their users and artists came from SoundCloud where years of, of music was, was built up. Remixes were made. People were building off of each other's work. Users built up their whole playlists out of these songs. It was where their entire music library lived. A lot of people's identity formed on in these communities. For some people, that one of the most important components of their identity was that they had this one song that remixed another song that got 10 million listens. And then one day, the record labels came and, and basically wiped a, a, a whole ton of all that work away. And the justification was that 10 remixes ago, a song might have had a fragment of a, a sample of another song. And I think... Everyone assumed that the social contract between record labels and and users and artists was such that this was all beneficial to the music industry and that it would persist. But because it was a centralized service and it wasn't censorship resistant, a lot of that, that work and identity got wiped away really quickly. So, Audius doesn't, you know, suffer from this problem because even if Audius were to get shut down as a company tomorrow, all of the music would still exist, all of the playlists would still exist, everyone's identity would still exist because every time you click a like button on a song, every time you add it to a playlist, every time you even listen to a song, just the count of that that listening is an on-chain transaction on Solana... And, and that's not possible if you don't have this type of performance where transactions and blockchain activity can fade into the background and just feel like a simple database entry. And we didn't really predict that that was the type of use case that would exist four years ago when we started building this thing, but we knew that something would need censorship resistance and something would need to feel like centralized services and be able to compete with something like Spotify. We just didn't know it would happen that fast. And now Audius has over 6 million users and they love it. And the artists are getting paid way more than they did on Spotify or elsewhere. And again, I still think we're at the very beginning
1: of seeing use cases like that that use this performance. And this is interesting that you brought up audience and also be, other than setting the foundation for the blockchain technology itself. One of the things I've seen in the last year Solana broke up with more and more developers adopting the technology to build decentralized apps or dapps we call it for example i think you mentioned just now ftx uses solana to build serum the high speed non-custodial derivatives exchange i'm very curious have you seen any recent interesting applications from the solana ecosystem that most excites you
0: every day honestly we we see stuff that wasn't built before um and I think in DeFi there's there's continuing to be just an explosion of, of new DeFi primitives and I, I think that, that space is almost moving too fast for me to keep up with. In NFTs, I think we're starting to see more more music NFTs. We're seeing on chain, entirely on chain games like like Laddercaster that, that effectively anyone could build a UI to and all the all the all the game logic is on chain. I think within gaming, we're also uh, starting to see games that are built from the ground up to be fun and, and encourage user-generated content in a, in a very native way. So users able to intuitively build castles and houses and vehicles and weapons and clothes within the game through crafting mechanics similar to, to Minecraft. But the twist is instead of chopping down a tree and just getting some useless in-game wood commodity, you're getting wood tokens that have real on-chain representations that are trading on, on real exchanges that you can go buy more of um, in a global marketplace. The game is built from the ground up to be really intuitive to export NFTs based on user generated content. So you can easily select a shirt that you created, a weapon that you created, a vehicle or or a, or a sculpture or a piece of art or, a, or or a dwelling and export it immediately to nft marketplaces go and be able to purchase that nft import it into your zone and then and and, and use it or even break it down for its raw materials so I think this is going to be really exciting in, in gaming it's it's not just gamefi which i think we've seen on in, in use cases like DeFi land where your farming tokens and um, and depositing them in, in DeFi vaults by, by moving things around a farm, sort of like Farmville. This is like GameFi on crack. It's it's like literally every in-game asset is an NFT or a token. So I think, I think that's going to be really powerful. That game is called Biomes, um, and it's built by the former director of engineering from Instagram and some really killer designers
1: and engineers. So we're super excited about that one. I understand that Solana Pay is recently launched. How does it work and what does it benefits for the broader ecosystem and also to the rest of the world?
0: You know, it, I think it's an, an obvious play at something that we knew Solana was going to be useful for from day one. So the performance of Solana, I guess I haven't mentioned it yet on this interview, but it's it's like... 10 or 20 bucks for a million transactions is a cost of moving money around on, on Solana. So this is already effectively the cheapest means in the world for moving money reliably with instant settlement and and quickly. So block times are 400 milliseconds. So this this feels like, like the Visa network, but nobody owns it. And We don't have to charge a minimum of of a dollar or two or or these transaction fees of like two to three percent and you don't need to necessarily come up with something like a point system to spread that value back to end users and incentivize them to use this this card payment network instead we have the technology now for for a payment system that effectively is free and and global and and has instantaneous settlement the the reality though is like we're not naive enough to think that just because it exists, all of a sudden everyone's gonna use it. People love credit cards, they work, they work really well, they're accepted by merchants all over the world and and points are are a really fun system of, of loyalty and, and incentivization for, for many users. I think that the play with Solana Pay was Let's just make it really easy for merchants to accept Solana pay, accept payments using any stable coins on the Solana network. And let's do that by making it very easy to generate QR codes that that instantiate a, a transaction for a given purchase and then and then make sure that any effectively any wallet that that accepts Solana SPL tokens and supports the Solana network can easily engage in that transaction. So, Right now, Solana Pay is a merchant checkout screen that, that, that anyone can can launch in, in a couple lines of code. There are hundreds of merchants that have already adopted it. So you can you can go and buy coffee in, in certain places, you can buy desks and office equipment online, and you can obviously buy NFTs and digital goods. And it's spreading in a in a pretty organic way. And people are using it for different use cases. Like if you do buy a, a pair of sneakers, you, you, you do have this on-chain receipt now. And so does it make sense to give give the purchaser a digital pair of sneakers alongside it so they instantaneously have an NFT that c- commemorates their purchase and gives them a digital twin? I think what we're seeing right now is once you, once you remove all of the friction from payments and just make it really easy for merchants to accept, and you have millions of users who technically can use this system, and then you open up to developers um, to figure out what to do with that extra margin. You'll start to see dozens of, of new experiments get run. So people have built an entirely on ordering systems for restaurants that also turn every cafe into a Western Union where you can go in with a bunch of cash. The the, the cafe can take the cash and then, and then transmit that money to an, any other cafe in the world that supports Solana Pay. I think this is just the very beginning of how people are making use of this this payments network, but the goal with Solana Pay was basically open it up to developers and, and see what they do. And in the last hackathon, I think uh, like a couple dozen teams built on top of Solana Pay, but but I think that's just the beginning. We're working on on
1: more developer incentive programs and 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 resources for for teams to build on top of it. So one interesting thing, last year we also observed uh, Solana outages and some critics attribute this to the fact that Solana sacrificed some form of decentralization in order to achieve the speed. I saw your Twitter comments as well. What are the critics getting wrong about the outages and what have you and your team in Solana learned from these outages?
0: Yeah, I, I think what the what the critics are getting wrong is that it's not necessarily just a, a straight trade off. The more decentralized you are, the 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 less likely you are to have a halt in block production or a degradation in performance. I think Vitalik said pretty, pretty famously, I think in like 2015, that, that fees above a dollar should be viewed as a liveness failure. And, and in that regard, Ethereum hasn't been live since like 2017 or 2018. These definitions are a little bit loose. I think that the main thing that, that we've learned is that, and, and I think this was pretty much expected, when you have thousands of developers building on top of a network that's two years old, and they're taking advantage of composability. So they're cross-calling each other's applications and, and they're building things that we didn't even think would expect, like these giant generative NFT projects with, with instant mints, where hundreds of thousands of people are calling the same contract at the same time. And then people are building sophisticated bots to come and try and game these things. There's sometimes unpredictable on-chain activity, and there's growing pains in the network. So there have been two actual outages, and then the last one was in September. And, and since then, there haven't been any outages. It's been more degraded performance. So ping times have gone up, and some users have, have have seen failed transactions in these times when really intense IDOs or NFT drops are happening. And I think it's worth noting, like the demand is going up over time. So every month, we're seeing hundreds of thousands or, or millions more users coming. And then the performance degradations are going down in frequency. So I think the problem's getting better over time. But I think one of the things that we've learned is that even one failed transaction for a user is, is too much. Because if one failed transaction causes one user to go on Twitter and say, hey, I think the network's down because I just had a transaction that wouldn't go through then that's, that's a big reputational hit. And it turns out you get asked on every podcast for the rest of the year <laughs> <laughs> what's going on. So, <clears throat> so I think obviously we're not satisfied. Like the, the core engineering team and all the core engineers that contribute to the Solana repo are are not satisfied. I think they're working around the clock to to improve network performance in times of congestion. There's a, a bunch you can read out there about implementing Quick as part of Solana. These, t- these changes take a little bit of time to propagate, so they need to soak on testnet for a few weeks. If, if we if we find anything, any issues, we need to push further upgrades. And then they get moved to mainnet very slowly because any big changes you want to really battle test before rolling them out to the global network. But we're getting pretty close. We're a few weeks away from some
1: pretty fundamental fixes. Mm. And also then there's the cybersecurity hacks as well in the crypto world. I think now state sponsored target attacks. Like for example the recent Ronin Bridge hack that causes uh Sky maybe or XC Infinity like to $600 million. And also there was a Solana hack that happened previously. Now, the word on the street is that it's on the security of cross-chain bridges. What do you think about these hacks and what is are the steps that are taken by the Solana team to think about improving security of cross-chain bridges? Obviously, the, the network itself is extremely secure. So can we still trust these bridges industry-wide? I think the, the important thing to know
0: about... Um Let's say, like the wormhole exploit, was that that's a, a smart contract exploit, you know, just like the the type of exploits that you see on Ethereum in DeFi, and and the ones that are unfortunately fairly commonplace across all of crypto. Smart contracts that hold large amounts of funds often become targets. And if there are any exploits possible, then it's it it tends to be just a matter of time before before the actual exploit happens and there's a theft of funds. But these are, these are not consensus bugs. They're not hacks of the Solana blockchain itself. And, and actually, I think the, the wormhole hack was a result of the exploit actually already being found by the world wormhole team. And then in the way they communicated it over GitHub as they tried to fix it, it, it brought the exploit to light and someone was able to make use of that information before the actual fix propagated so I think what, what we have learned as an industry is that bridges are only as secure as the smart contracts that compose the bridge and that these smart contracts are going to be incredibly valuable targets and they need to be audited and built in a doubly secure way. So I, I think probably this, this last round was a, a valuable lesson. I think bridges are, are also incredibly useful in this in this multi chain world that that sprung up very quickly. I think a lot of teams built bridges as fast as they could, as securely as they as they thought they could and there was just some level of unknown unknowns that that had to play out so luckily wormhole exploit wasn't existential for the ethereum solana connection and there are multiple bridges as well so i think users have choice and it tends to be that once an exploit happens it doesn't it doesn't tend to
1: happen twice so the developer community is growing for solana globally specifically for asia pacific where i'm based what are you most excited about in my region with regards to the adoption of Solana?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we just saw a really intense renewal of interest in, in let's say, like Vietnam, where I think the, the thing that excites me most is not just when users show up, but when core developers and validators and, and application developers and investors, like the whole full-fledged ecosystem with all those personas springs up in in a region, and it's somewhat self-sufficient. So you have validators and core developers that really understand the network and are super technical and have been with it for a while. You see those people advising and, and working with and unblocking application developers that are acquiring local users for local use cases. And then you have capital pools from local investors that often made their money in crypto, built their own uh, proprietary funds or were able to raise capital based on their track record of investing. And I think we're starting to see that in in Vietnam, in in China, in South Korea, in Philippines, where else? I mean, really everywhere. Like this is why we've we've been doing things like the hacker houses even though these these local ecosystems are are growing organically and evolving on their own. What we try to do is take the the developers that have been in the the salon ecosystem for the longest, whether they're from Europe or, or the US or or anywhere else and and bring that global community together even just for one week in in these so I think the latest one in in Vietnam it was practically self-run but but we're gonna see more hacker houses in, in Asia I think to, to bring the global community together and and then after after we leave, hopefully the the, the economy there and, and that, that ecosystem is a little more vibrant because we had OG like core Solana developers and
1: folks like Bartosz and Jordan come through and and help unblock people a little bit more. So my final question, what does great look like for Solana in the next five years? I think within five years, it's possible that that we see a billion
0: users transacting on chain daily and and maybe as many as a million developers. Maybe that millionth developer is not building the next Serum. Maybe they're they're even just doing like a a light deployment of of their own NFT store. But I, I think those numbers seem possible to me. And... And I think we have an intuition that at like 100 million users with self-custody signing their own transactions every day at those, those numbers, 100 million and a billion, those are where there's going to be big unlocks and unexpected use cases that, that pop up in the way that people coordinate their resources together, make, make shared decisions together, align interests together and participate in new forms of global capital markets together and i think yeah within the next five years it seems possible because some of these breakout applications today are are getting to hundreds of thousands of users or millions of users pretty quickly and then there's like a natural learning curve to getting getting the billionth person to understand what a wallet means and what self-custody means and I, i think we'll cross
1: that that threshold within five years Raj, many thanks for coming on the show. In closing, I have two questions. My first question is: any recommendations that have inspired you recently?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I like to read sci-fi, and I think Ted Chang, who wrote the short story that that inspired the movie Arrival, he has a, a book of short stories called Exhalation. Um, and uh, and also Cixin Liu has a, a book of short stories called The Wandering Earth, where mm. he he experiments with a lot of these wildly different visions for how humanity plays out based on a few technological catalysts. And I think both of those short story books are, are some of my favorites in the last couple of months. Great.
1: And how can my audience
0: find you? Yeah, I'm mainly on Twitter. My, my handle is at Raj Gokal,
1: R-A-J-G-O-K-A-L. Mm. And you can definitely find us on all the podcast platforms. And of course, tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. Raj, many thanks for coming on the show to share about Solana Foundation and and everything else going through with the ecosystem. I look forward to have you back and thank you for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Take care.